Um, good morning again. Uh, welcome to Seven Mile Road. We are uh, very glad that you're here today, especially if this is your first time. Welcome again. Um, a man by the name of uh, John Paul Sartre, you may have heard of him. He's a 20th century French philosopher. Um, he paints this brilliant picture of the human condition with this, this illustration. Um, he says, imagine yourself in a room, maybe like this. You're in a room and there's a door inside the room. On the door is a keyhole. And within the keyhole, you see light coming through this keyhole. And so you're curious. You go up to the door, you look through it, and to your surprise, as you look through the door, you see other people on the other side, living life, doing what they're doing, and they have no idea that you're watching. They're going through life, they're thinking what they're thinking, and they have no clue that you're looking. And so you can see them, but as they look to you, you're just looking through a keyhole. And so um, you get to see everything that they're doing. But immediately as you're viewing their life, viewing their actions and what their lives entail, you hear a noise behind you. You look behind you and you notice another keyhole. And when you look at that keyhole, you look through it, you see two eyes peering into you, into your life. And then immediately you, you realize that as you're viewing others through this keyhole, other people are also viewing their eyes into your life. And you suddenly realize that you're in a world full of people looking at you, you looking at others, and you feel this sense of deep vulnerability. And you, you feel this sense of, of exposure, like, like you have no privacy. And so you get to see them, they get to see you, and as you're looking, you realize that this makes you feel dehumanized. It's not, it's not, it doesn't feel natural for you because you've lost control. You're uncomfortable. You've lost control of what people see of you. You no longer are able to hold those things that are hidden. We want to be able to control what is seen of us. For some to have complete access to what you're thinking and doing and how you're feeling, it's unnerving. And just the thought of, of that, imagine yourself at home. You look, and people are looking into your bedroom. People are looking into your living room. People are even able to see the things that you look on on the internet. People are able to see the arguments you have your, with your wife. People are able to see you for who you are, not who you are when you step outside and face the world. We have a desperate, desperate need to cover ourselves. And it's interesting because in this illustration, the man who says this he doesn't even believe in a creator. He doesn't believe in moral absolutes. And yet he says through this illustration that there is wired somehow into all of us, every single one of us, this deep and desperate need to be covered and to hide ourselves from the peering eyes of others. We don't want others to deeply know who we are or what we think. Why is that? Because we know who we are and we know what we think. And if others knew the same details of our minds and hearts, we would be ashamed. We would be utterly ashamed. And so to be saved from the shame and guilt, we desperately, we desperately run to cover ourselves. And isn't this much of what happens when we read Genesis 3? It's a story that even if you're not a churchgoer, you may be familiar with. You have this scene of Adam and Eve. God created the first two humans and they're now placed into existence. And now they're living in this garden in relationship with God communing with him, and, and, and all is well, and they're living in relationship with him, free to, to live and, and enjoy life, and what happens? 
On a fateful day in that garden that they were placed in, they finally give in to sin. Immediately filling their consciences with shame and with guilt and humiliation, they are filled and covered with sin. So what do they do? With being exposed before God, as if God doesn't already know, they try to cover up. And it's, it's not 21st century Philadelphia where there's a gap around the corner. You can just go get some jeans and a shirt. They pull down some fig leaves off of the branches and they try to cover themselves. They desperately seek to cover themselves. And it's, a, it's an amazing sight. And it, and it speaks to us that from the very beginning of our existence is this fundamental insecurity in us to cover ourselves To be uncovered, to be exposed, to be vulnerable is unbearable. Our coverings in today's world, they may not be fig leaves, um, but they function in the same way, the things that we use to cover ourselves. So in our fallen world, people filled with people who are covering shame and guilt and all of this with things like our careers or sex and popularity and materialism and addictions, these are our coverings. And with all of this stuff, I would argue that there's an even deeper need than the need to cover yourself. I believe the way God created us was not to cover, but we have a deeper need to be real and to be vulnerable, to be exposed before God, to remove the masks and to not fake it, to be seen for who we are in all of our mess. And Psalm 32, the psalm that Ajay read for us this morning, this psalm gives us a picture of what that type of life could look like for us. A life that is honest, a life that is true, a life that is authentic. And and we we cover ourselves, and yet we also seek this authenticity. Psalm 32 gives us a vision for what that might look like. And it's interesting because the the person, we'll we'll learn his story in a minute, but the person who writes this, it's, it's an author of many of the Psalms, his name is David, King David. In this psalm, David allows us to see his soul. He doesn't just give us the outer shell of what he portrays. He lets us peer into his heart and soul and mind into what he is thinking. We see the David that really loved and yearned after God. We see the David that that groaned and weeped before God. We see the David that sinned so violently and so grossly against God and others, people that he actually loved As I was reading the psalm this week, it's as if David knew my own heart. It's as if he was inside my soul expressing things with his words that I was feeling but didn't know how to express. As as we read together, as we read this psalm and go over each verse, you'll feel the same way. You'll feel this psalm as like holding a mirror in front of your face, revealing what you feel, who you are. And my prayer is that it will result in a gracious encouragement for our hearts. And so let's pray together, asking for the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts to the words of this psalm. God, we are dependent on you to speak to us this morning. There is nothing uh, that the words of a man could say to change hearts, to change lives. Um, There's nothing that the words of a human being can do to change a heart, and so we are in desperate need of your supernatural, imposing Holy Spirit grace to come and rapture our hearts and to change them and to transform them. Our hearts are often far from you, and we we find ourselves desperately seeking to cover 
who we are, to cover our nakedness. And we use many different things to do that. This morning, Lord, um, as we read Psalm 32, show us a better way. Show us a way that is real and true. Show us right and true living. And ultimately, Lord, reveal to us Christ Jesus. Be with us as we speak. Be with my own heart as I speak. Lord, we pray for changed hearts this morning. We pray for salvation to come to your hearers today. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So again, we're in this uh, series in the summer called Summer in the Psalms. We're over five weeks covering five different categories of psalms that we see predominantly in the psalms. And psalms have a ton of different categories, and these five we've, we've decided are going to give us a good flavor, a good taste of what the psalms do. And it's, it's amazing, as you read the psalms, we've said that pretty much every human emotion that you could ever imagine are contained in this. And so it gives us great language, great words to be able to use when we don't have words to express our hearts before God. And so we started week one with uh, a psalm of wisdom. Last week was a psalm of lament. And this week, we come to a psalm of confession. And again, uh, my prayer is that this would be an avenue for us to even uh, search our hearts and to see what it is that is covered even in our own thoughts and words. And so may this be an opportunity for that to happen. Um, Before we get started into the psalm, just some um, brief background on the psalm and where we're headed with it. Um, Psalm 32, again, is written by this man, David. He was a king. He was a man of God, a man after God's own heart. This psalm gives us great insight and wisdom from David because he is a man who is experienced. He is a man who, who has sinned much. And so as we look at him, we are looking at an experienced sinner. And, and the same token, he has in, experienced incredible joys in life with God. And so you have this man who has, has contrasting experiences that give us great wisdom. And so it's good for this psalm to be given to us. And even the, the heading of this psalm, you might notice, says it's a masculine of David. That means it's, it's a teaching. It's a didactic, didactic psalm that gives us instruction. And so this is meant to be taught and to be giving us wisdom to be able to live life as we face this issue of confession. And so David, you can imagine him like a loving brother wants us to hear this psalm, his story, so that we might experience his joys and avoid his pitfalls. And we're going to break this psalm up into four parts this morning. And so there's a lot of different thoughts going on here. So to make it easy, we're going to cover first verses 1 to 2, talking about the blessedness of forgiveness. Verses 3 to 4, we'll talk about the sorrow of unconfessed sin. Verses 5 to 7, the mercy of God's forgiveness And then 8 through 11, the nearness of God in confession. And as we go through these four portions of the psalm, we're asking the question of what confession is and why it is so important in our lives. And so what do we want to figure out at the end of all this? Here's the takeaway for today. This is what we want to remember going out of this Sunday. That blessed is the one who confesses his sins. For by God's mercy, his sins are covered and he is near to him. Say that again. Blessed is the one who confesses his sins. For by God's mercy, his sins are covered, and he is near to him. So with that, let's get into our first section, the blessedness of forgiveness for sinners in verses 1 and 2. Let's read that. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So in verses one and two, you see this beginning word, blessed. And so in the English language, it's very easy for words in the Greek and Hebrew and all different kinds of words to come into the English language and lose some of its meaning. And so blessed is one of those words that you read it, we're not used to it in our, in our day, we don't use it often, but blessed is a profoundly deep word that's used in this psalm. What this word actually communicates is this complete and deep fulfillment. The one who is blessed has complete, deep fulfillment, one that is everlasting and rich and of highest gain. That's the type of blessedness that's being talked about. Blessedness here is being talked about with imperishable life, eternal bliss with God himself. It is no small blessing, but it is in fact the highest of blessings. And who is this blessing given to? We read, who is this blessed one? It's the forgiven person. The forgiven one is the blessed person. It's not ascribed to the diligent, to the morally perfect person who does everything right, but rather to the sinner who is forgiven and whose sin is covered. This kind of blessedness is the kind that is given to the prodigal. If you, if you know the story of the prodigal son who left home, squandered his, his wealth and his, his life, sinned, and then he came back home. This blessedness is that type where the, where the prodigal leaves home and comes back and dad welcomes him, welcomes him home, the sinner who has been forgiven. This blessedness is to hear from God's own mouth the absolution of your sins, the forgiveness of your sins, the redemption of your sins. It is joy unspeakable. And so this is a full, instant, irreversible pardon of sin that completely changes the course of one life. And so you would imagine the sinner on his way to hell gets blessed by forgiveness and the path that was headed towards hell, the traumas of hell is now reversed and he receives all the riches of heaven. It is an incredible blessedness. And so this great miracle of the destiny of forgiven people transpired on the cross. Many of us have heard the story of the cross. What happens here? Jesus puts, himself all, puts on himself all of our transgressions rather than us having to endure its weight. And he covers our sins rather than shaming us to make us feel the embarrassment of it. And he doesn't count our iniquities against us, but rather he counts it on himself as though he committed these sins. That's what happened on the cross. If you are in Christ, he does not count even your most shameful moments against you. Think about that. Think about honestly in your own life, we've had sin. We've had very shameful moments, whether personally or publicly, Things that when we think about, we even struggle to think and ponder about because it brings us such um, guilt and concern. Those things Jesus has not counted against you. And that is incredible. Rather, as one pastor says, for the sake of Christ, God treats us not like the sinners we deserve, but he treats us like morally elegant people. As if, as, as if we are the most perfect, righteous people. Rather than sinners destined to hell, he treats us like we are morally elegant. That's how he thinks of us. And so it's no wonder why David chooses to use this word blessed. 
Blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven and sins are covered. And for David, you think of his, his culture, you think of where he's coming from. He may also have in mind this day that we've discussed here, this day in the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement. And so it's in fact said to, this psalm is actually have said to be sung during these days as, as a reminder of what God has done. And so what happens on this Day of Atonement? It's a day that has been followed by solemn fasting, solemn prayer. It's a day that um, the people are looking forward to. And so what happens is a goat would be picked. A goat would be picked and brought forth on this day before the high priest. At that point, the high priest lays his hands on the goat and begins to confess the sins of these people. And by doing so, he transfers all of the sins of these people onto the head of the goat. And then someone leads the goat into the wilderness, and the, the goat is set free, and all of the sins of these people have been washed away. And so it is with this heart that the Israelites are even able to say, blessed am I whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And so David might have this in his mind as he says this. This is what Christ has done for us. He is the scapegoat that bears the sins of the world, and in this we are blessed beyond our utmost conception. This forgiveness that has been given removes our need to hide from God. You remember the story of Adam and Eve? This removes that need. And what a weight off of us that is. The last part of verse 2 says that those who are forgiven have no deceit in their spirit. No deceit. What is this saying? If you're forgiven, you confess before God. If you're forgiven, you deal openly with God. You deal frankly with God. You no longer take up fig leaves to cover yourselves. Why? Because God has become the covering for your shame and for your sinfulness. If you've tried to cover yourself and close up, and hide from God with deceit, the relationship between you and God would be a sham. It would be fake. But many of us are married here. Think of the relationship between a man, a man and a woman. When I married my wife, we, we made vows to each other. and We made vows for better or for worse to be with each other. And so that's going to be secure. That's going to be strong. Um, but when, uh, when I have bad days, and when I sin, and when I err against her, does that make me less of a husband? No. Or when I have great days of being a husband, and I'm a stellar husband, do, do I become more of a husband that day? That doesn't change anything. I am her husband, she is my wife, and that is strong. But, but think about what it would be for me to err against her, to, to sin against her, and just to presume that it's okay, as if I don't need to come to her, because she's my wife. It's, it's all good. We're going to be together no matter what. If I presume that, that relationship would be so, um, it, would, it would be ruined and it would be distorted and perverse. When I sin, what I should do is come to her asking for forgiveness, confessing my sin. And that's what a real relationship look like, looks like. That's what an authentic two-way relationship looks like. You're honest before your wife. You're honest before your husband. You're honest before your kids. You're honest before others. You're honest before God. In coming to Christ and knowing him, we are not coming to this uh, mist in the air. We are not coming to some sort of abstraction. We are coming to a person. We are coming to Jesus Christ. 
And so following him means complete devotion to this person, divulging your whole self to him, not in deceit. What is a deceitful heart? A deceitful heart is one that says, um, I, I love the general biblical truths of the Bible, but I don't want them applied to me personally. Or this sermon, these sermons are great, but they apply to someone else, the person next to me. Or if confession is what's being called for, a deceitful heart would say, I can get to that next week, or I'll, I'll prepare a formal time for that. And it never happens. That is the deceit that forgiven people, um, that we, we somehow think that forgiveness just comes and comes, and we never have to go back to God. Um, but it's interesting because the, the person who writes this psalm is perhaps one of the biggest deceivers, one of the biggest cover-uppers of his sin that we see in the Bible, and yet he's writing this psalm to us. What was, what was David's story? This psalm was likely written by David in a time when, in a very dark time, in a very um, difficult time for David. Uh, you may remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's an account of events that would haunt David for a while. One day while David was uh, on his terrace at the temple, at, at his palace, he gazes over and sees this woman bathing outside. This woman's name is Bathsheba. And, and he sees this woman and immediately he grows a lust for her and he wants her and he has her and he impregnates her. And that's enough to make you feel awful. But what, what happens now, David has impregnated this woman who is married to a man named Uriah. And so this is, this is King David. And so what does he do? He covers up his tracks. What does he try to do? He pulls Uriah from the army and tells him, hey, you haven't seen your wife in a while. Why don't you go to her bed and lie with her? What's the purpose? He wants to, him to think, wait, once the child is born, the child is his. And so he's being deceptive. He, he tries to cover his tracks. And so that doesn't work. Uriah doesn't do it. And so what's plan B? David sends forth a concealed letter sent by Uriah himself to the general, telling the general to put Uriah on the front lines of battle, knowing full well that Uriah will most likely die there. And so what's, what's the goal now? He wants to get rid of him so that his sin would be covered and he, he wouldn't have to deal with it. And so you see this man, David, covering one sin with another, with another, and what happens? Uriah goes, he dies. And then one more nail in the coffin, he dies, David marries Bathsheba. And this, this guy is in deep, it's, it's some really bad stuff that he's facing right now. And he covers his sin, and he covers his sin. And we begin to see through this story of David that covering sin, hiding from sin, not acknowledging your sin, brings about great sorrow, great heartache for the sinner. Let's read about this in verse 3. The sorrow of unconfessed sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. So David, in all this sin, probably has this in his mind. David closes himself off to God and feels deeply the shame and guilt of what he has done. 
He's experienced in this. He becomes devious, though he has been so honest before. Now he feels this deep need to cover up and to be defiant. He tries to extinguish the mighty fire of conscience that is pressing down on his mind, and he continues to live his life. It says that his bones, the very frame of who he is, begins to decay with weakness when he does not confess. His grief was strong. And it's interesting, he was so silent to confess, but his groaning would last all day. And he was not silent to groan. Why does, why does David delay to confess his sins to the Lord? Is it as if he doesn't know the Lord? Is it as if he doesn't know who he is and what he is about? I believe often when there is such grievous and awful sin in our lives, when the things that when a little white lie happens, okay, you might be able to say, I shouldn't have done that. But when the bigger things happen, when you start to see your heart and your soul and the ugliness of it, these grievous sins begin to even further distance us from God, and we feel like we cannot approach him, and there is greater delay to confess. Why do we do this? Because the sin itself, the actual sins that we think of and, and, and struggle with and actually indulge in, they captivate us. They look so good. And so when we see an opportunity or when we have a thought, we look at that sin, we start off and we look at this sin. We look at it and then slowly after some gazing, we begin to long after it. And that catches our attention and sooner or later, we indulge in the sin. And then once you are in sin, once you are in it, it doesn't feel so bad. It doesn't feel so overwhelming. And it's interesting because at once the sorrow of sin is heavy and then you're all of a sudden in it. It doesn't feel so bad. A preacher named Charles Spurgeon gives us a great illustration of this. He says, imagine that sin, um, the imagine an ocean and that water in that ocean is sin, all of it's sin. Imagine you have a pail and you scoop it up into the ocean, and you take this pail and put it over your head, and just you rest it atop of your head. That, that pail of water would feel heavy. It would, it would certainly feel heavy. Uh, but imagine, instead of that pail being on top of your head, you take it down, and you dive into the ocean, and you're in the ocean. All of a sudden, the, the pain and the weight of that sin doesn't feel so burdensome anymore. In fact, it feels quite thrilling. It feels good. It feels comfortable. You are in it. You are in the sin. And you're there. And, and you're comfortable. It's interesting because the effects of sin are so damning, but we pursue it with such great passion because it so deeply captivates us. And when we're in it, it feels good. And there is both great enjoyment in sin and awful guilt. So what does the Lord do for us when we are in this situation? What does the Lord do for those who are anxious and guilty over their sin, yet enjoying it and have a host of emotions that they are feeling? What does the Lord do for us? What does he do for David? In great mercy, in great grace, he applies pressure. What does verse 4 say? For day and night... Your hand was heavy upon me. Whose hand? God's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God in mercy 
for the salvation of the sinner, for the salvation and forgiveness of David, will pursue and press on the conscience to drive the sinner to Christ. That's what he was doing with David. We would expect God in the situation where David is, in the heat of summer, groaning and, and, and awful, feeling guilty, we would expect God to just remove that weight from him. But, but what does God do? He actually adds pressure like a heavy hand atop David. He feels weak, like a man without water in a desert. He feels parched. He felt the weight of his conscience pressing down. Have you felt this way, where you are in sin, or you, you are in thoughts um, sinning, or you're in a season of life where you are far from God, and you feel this heavy hand on you, and, and you don't know what to do about it, you're, you're sort of just living life. As I've been in this psalm, preparing this psalm, it's, it's impossible to be in God's word and not have it cut you. And so it, these past weeks as I've been in this, I have been confronted deeply with sins that I was slow to come to God with. Sins that I would convince myself weren't that bad. Or things that I would say to make it seem justifiable. Like a child, I was refusing to own up to what I had done. And that's what this psalm does. Even, even in the prep, I would dread having to look at the, the chapter because it would begin to reveal like a mirror what I feel in my heart. And so that's what God's word does for us and what balm that is for our souls and our hearts. My, my sin had a bright spotlight on it. it. I could not avoid it. But in that heaviness, in that uh, the pain, the guilt, the shame, you know what was my joy? And I'm sure it was the joy of David in that time. I felt the heavy hand of God on my mind urging me to come to him with my sin. Why is that so good? Because you feel God and you know he has not forgotten you in your sin. The heaviness that you feel is not hate, is not anger from God, it is mercy. And so David, when he feels this heavy hand pressing down on him because of his sin, that is mercy. That is grace and mercy from God. And when all of a sudden, in Spurgeon's illustration, when all of a sudden that, that ocean of sin that we swim in, once enjoying, now feels like tanks of metal water, metal tanks of water above our heads that we cannot even hold it anymore. It feels so heavy. The one sin that once felt so good, the Lord pressures us. He pushes down on us puts his heavy hand on us in mercy. What do we do? What must we do? We must flee that ocean of sin, running to the shores of Jesus, who is ready to embrace us in his arms. And that's what, that's what David begins to feel. He's pressing down on him so he might come to him. And uh, I, I am there with you. It's so hard often to confess sin. It really is. There, there are various things that keep us away from that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Many of us try to run and evade from looking at our sin directly, straight in the eye, looking at, and, looking at it and saying, that, that is what I do. That is what I think. We indulge quickly, but we're 
after we're, we're slow to look back and see what we have done. We do something and we, we think, you shouldn't have done that. Or we think something and our conscience says, you shouldn't have thought that. But we suppress it and we ignore it. And in not confessing to the all-knowing God who sees our obvious struggle and anguish, it's as if we're sinning and then we're struggling and we look up at God, the all-seeing God, and he sees us struggling and we just act like we're fine, but we are obviously tired and parched and overwhelmed with this sin that is over us. We look back at God and act like we're clean and perfect and good, living life as usual just as David did. But it's foolishness. It's utter foolishness because God is the all-seeing God. And we continue to relentlessly cover up and silence of our sin. But until the heavy hand of, of God begins to press down on David, it, began, it begins to be so heavy that David cannot take the immense weight of it and his conscience bears witness to God's hand and he releases himself from the bondage of concealment of his sins. And what does he do? He says, O Lord, I have sinned. I have sinned. And he does it. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges his sin to God. The mercy of God's forgiveness is about to be seen by David. What does God do once David actually confesses his sin? Does he try to shame him? Or does he try to condemn him? Does the heavy hand of God now come crashing down on David because he finally admitted he's a sinner? No, in fact, that very hand, that very heavy hand that came down and pressured David is now the strong hand of God that is lifting him up out of his sin, showing mercy to David. Hear what David says when he finally confesses before God, verses 5 to 7. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Um, Do you sense the sudden shift in David's spirit. Think of who he was in verses three and four, and now the words that he's using after he has acknowledged his sin to the Lord, such a a shift of tone. Can you hear the delight in his voice? You are my hiding place. You forgave my iniquity. Everyone should do this. When God is able to be found, all of us confess to the Lord of our sins. And it's, it's as if he's saying, all this time I was running and I was, pa- I was in pain, I was in anguish, I felt tired and weak, and I come to the Lord and he's forgiven me in a moment. And all of that struggle, all of that hiding, now come to light in the mercy and grace of our Lord. It seems so foolish and it seems so um, counterintuitive of his knowledge of God. How quickly the Lord forgives. How vast is his grace, even when someone such as David and like us are delayed to come to him with our sin. David tried to cover his sin for so long, like many of us do, 
Covering takes many forms. They're not always fig leaves. Um, Some of us, we will take our career, we will take our work, and we will kill ourselves to drive to the top because we want to be successful. Is there anything wrong with being successful? No. But this becomes what will define us. That will become our cover, our success. Others of us are trying desperately to look a certain way or to have ourselves perceived in a certain persona as if we have it all together. And many of us have kids and we have wives and husbands. We will try to hide behind the appearance of a perfectly well-put family where there's no... There's nothing wrong. There's no flaws, no imperfections. We'll buy things with our money. We'll busy ourselves with hobbies and different things. Are these all things innately bad? No, but why, do, why are we doing these things often when it comes to our sin? We're trying to use them as fig leaves to cover our sin. Like David, all the tactics he went through to cover his sin, and even as a king, all the more reason to cover his sin. But what great words are here for us this morning that allows us to hear that we no longer need to do this to try to desperately cover our shame with empty, empty things because the Lord himself is our covering. We don't have to overwork to prove something. We don't have to undereat in an unhealthy way to look a certain way. We don't have to worry about what the mirror shows us because God covers you. And there is no shame, and forgiveness has been given for sin. If the hand of God is pressing heavy on your conscience today, if you're knee-deep in sin, if you are where David felt like he was, if you have been far from the Lord or have never known him at all, listen closely to David's words when he says, offer prayer to the Lord at a time where he may be found before the great waters come that would otherwise consume you they can be able to not even reach you if you find God's grace today. Why? Why is, his, why is God's grace, why is his mercy able to uh, separate us from the troubles and, and the, the overwhelming waters of sin? Because he is, in verse seven, a hiding place for me. He preserves us from trouble. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. Because of the shame and sin that guilt causes, we often fear God's wrath, right? We said it before, we feel unworthy with the greatness of our sin to even speak his name or to come before him or even in these pews that we sit in and stand in to sing about God. I mean, it's, it's tough living life, dealing with sin, coming in here and then feeling like a complete hypocrite. We feel like we're not able to do anything before the Lord, before the sight of God. I feel that way often. I'm up here often, and my heart is often heavy. Who am I to come before the Lord and be before him as this? But David pleads with us, saying, Sinner, feel the hiding place of the Lord this morning and the welcome that he offers. When the soft whispers of Satan say that you are unworthy, or too foregone to reach God because of your sin? Hear the strong voice of the Lord surrounding you with shouts of deliverance, saying, no, he is mine, she is mine. Their sins will not be counted against them. 
do not cover, do not hide, but rather allow Christ to be your covering and to be your hiding place. Allow the God who would otherwise rightfully be the judge of your condemnation now be the source of your refuge and your salvation. And forgiven hearts, hearts that have experienced God's mercy and grace, when, when they experience that, they want to remain in Christ. When, when you sense God's grace in your life, there's a sense in you that says, I don't want to go back to that life. I don't want to go back to where I once was. And God himself wants you to remain in him. And he is faithful to preserve you until the end. That brings us to our last section God wants to be near to us. He wants to be near to us. We read of this in verses 8 to 11. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love Surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Verses 8 and 9, the first two verses of this section, um, God is speaking directly through David to us with God's words. And in both his words, the words that he uses, and his direct communication with us, God is communicating that he wants to be near to us. He himself tells us that he will be our instructor. He will be our guide. And he, he uses uh, the words, his eyes will be fixed on us. His eyes are on us. He wants to be near to us. It's such personal words from God to us. As if we're sitting at the feet of Jesus himself, listening to his gracious counsel, as, as a father would instruct his children the way to the good life. So does our Father invite us to be so near to him, to counsel us. But in God's world, the path to the good life and what good life is, is so different from what the world would offer us. It looks so different. God's idea of, uh, of the good life is what we described in verses 1 and 2, the blessed one. That life is the good life. Those who are forgiven, he has in mind for us something far greater, more everlasting, more rich and satisfying than these empty coverings and gains that we try to fill with our world. Our eyes are so small, our minds are so small that they cannot begin to see the richness of who Christ is and the richness that he offers us with life in him. And it's amazing um, how much God wants this for us in verse 9, um, out of nowhere, he pulls out this line, don't be a mule. And so you're reading the psalm, and all of a sudden God says, don't be a, don't be a mule-like Christian. Uh, what does that mean? It's, it, when you first hear it, it's kind of insulting, and then you realize what he's trying to actually say. Mules are easily distracted. They'll, they'll, they'll walk down a road, they'll, they might have a target in mind, and then all of a sudden they'll see some grass and, and go to the side and it'll fancy their eye and they'll go after it and start eating. And a mule is easily distracted and what keeps him in place? It's that bit, it's that bridle that will bring him back to his position. 
But this type of relationship is not what God's after with us. He wants us to be near to him, to know him. And he knows that when we know him, we will not stray to the left and right. And when we do, we would be close enough to come back to him. When we confess our sins before God, um, it's not because God doesn't know them already. Some of us might have the question, um, God is all-knowing, why do this formality of confession? God does not want your confession for his information. It's not so that he can gain knowledge of your sin, but he calls for your confession for your benefit. And so only when we begin to realize that would we begin to take confession um, as life-giving, as, as essential for our lives. He wants us here to be near him, and he warns that the sorrows of the wicked are many in verse, verse 10. The sorrows of the wicked are many, and to avoid it, he surrounds us with steadfast love. God wants to be near you because he knows when you are. Your awareness of him, your awareness of sin, the work of the cross, all of it would be make, made clearer and you begin to live life truly. Um, there's a Latin phrase some of us may have heard called uh, quorum Deo. And, and this term uh, sort of signifies this idea of life being lived before the face of God. Life being lived in the presence and the face of God. That's what we're aiming for with, with Christian life. Um, to be able to be Bear before God, eye to eye, nothing before us in him. Who I am is who God sees, nothing fake, authentic living before the Father. And to live quorum Deo will necessitate your confession of your life and sin to him always. So as we conclude, I want to pose just two simple questions for us to consider. The first one, do you realize the need for your confession of sins? Simply, do you realize the need for your confession of sins? We take a moment of silence each week on Sunday. We did today to confess our sins before God. Why do we do this? Is it because we love ritual? Is it because we just feel like we need to fill a space or we need a, we need a transition between songs? No, there's a reason, a very good reason why we confess in our lives some of us might have the objection, I confessed once at my salvation. Shouldn't that last for all eternity? Or couldn't one confession a month just be good enough to last all the sins that I've committed? Uh, John Calvin has some very wise words for us to hear in this idea of confession of our life. Here are the words of the reformer John Calvin. He says, the more eminently that anyone excels in holiness, the further he feels himself from perfect righteousness and the more clearly he perceives that he can trust in nothing more but the mercy of God alone. Hence it appears that those are grossly mistaken who conceive that the pardon of sin is necessarily only to the beginning of righteousness. As believers are every day involved in many faults, it will profit them nothing that they have once entered the way of righteousness unless the same grace which brought them into it Accompany them to the last step of their life. Sin is at our doorstep every day. It is waiting for us. When we leave the doors of this church, or when we are even sitting here, 
Sin is at our doorstep. And if we ignore it, if we don't acknowledge it, it will destroy us. God's grace uses the knowledge of your sins. He presses heavy to actually bring about peace in your life. And this is all very counterintuitive to the, wor- the way the world works. Do what you want, do what you feel. But God sees life and knows life and has created life. He knows what real life is. And he wants you to acknowledge your sin so that in doing so, we would be able to live true life. We know the harmfulness of sin. Both that we have committed, many of us, sins have been committed against us that hurt, that cut deep, and so we know its harm. And so the grace um, that we received upon first confession, um, that is one that we need for all of life, both for our sin and for the sins that have been committed against us. This grace doesn't just start at our salvation. This forgiveness, this confession, doesn't just start at our confession initially, but It is what sustains us. The perseverance of our salvation does not suddenly fall into our hands once Jesus has saved us. But we always rest in him. Every moment of every day. And when we confess our sins, we are acknowledging not only our sins, that's not the only thing we're acknowledging, but we are also acknowledging that we are not in control of our lives and that we are not in control of our salvation. That's what daily confession does for us. It's not just ritual. It's not just rote tradition or it's not just a spiritual exercise that God wants you to do to be a good Christian. It is essential for our hearts and lives. For us, this is the way of confession. This is the life of confession. It's a daily thing. And the more we mature in our faith, as John Calvin alludes to, the more quickly we will come to a realization that we need to confess our sinfulness. There may be times where you will not confess to the Lord for a long while. Today might be one of those days where you have not come to him. Honestly, you may have have gone through the the ritual and done something, but not truly. There may may be a long time where you haven't done that. Today might be your day to be able to confess your sins. Um, But the rhythm of those who live in Christ is not these once a year or twice a year traumatic moments in our lives where we are so... Uh, overcome by our sin. That's not the rhythm of those who are in Christ and know him. The rhythm of the Christian is to come to him at the moment of sin, to stand where you are when you have a thought, when you have a sin, and say, Lord, I am sorry. I, I confess that I've sinned and I need your grace. And it's, we'll make excuses. We'll say, I don't have time or I need this formal time. I encourage you, don't wait for that. Confess your sins when you sin. And the more you are near to God, living in the face of God, not hiding or covering, the easier it will be for you to do this. Because being near to God means that you're wrapped up in who he is. You're not wrapped up in being a a together person. You're not wrapped up in being moral or perfect. Your identity, who you are, is in Christ, and your pursuit is holiness. That's what you're worried about. And so this illustration of the, the keyhole by John Paul in the beginning that we talked about, it sort of reverses, right? We're no longer um, so awfully embarrassed of ex- being exposed. We're not so awfully embarrassed of people seeing into our lives or God seeing into our lives. And, and that's the thing. This, this life of confession doesn't only extend to God, but it extends to those who are around us. 
We, we talk a lot about GCM. This is something we do often. These moments that we get together, we confess our sins. We open our hearts to each other. Why? So that people might know the real you. Not the shell of who you are, but the inward soul of who you are. And that is what a church is, a community of confession. That Seven Mile Road is what we need to be about, a community of confession. How refreshing it is to be around people who are not putting up masks, but are giving you who they are. And Christ, for the sinner, has prepared a great banquet for us. If you, if you are fully fed and you have no more room in your stomach to eat, why would you come to this banquet? Or if, if you are fully clothed and covered and you, need no need, you have no need of covering, why would you need to come and be covered at this banquet? This banquet that has food and drink and clothing to cover you, royal robes. It is a sinner who knows his sin, realizes his sin for who this banquet is, for the sinner who is hungry, for the sinner who is cold and unclothed and naked. God invites us to come to this banquet to be clothed and to be fed. Second question, quick question I want to ask you is, do you see Jesus as the one who can forgive your sins? Is Jesus the one that can forgive your sins? Many will not come to God because of unbelief in God's power to confess or his love to be able to extend to your sinful heart. But did the Lord not once love you enough to redeem you from death and to cover your sin then? And so if you are in Christ and you are delayed to come to the Lord, will the Lord not love you when you have sinned again, no matter how grievous the sin? Don't let delay of sin or grandness of sin keep you from coming to the Lord. Would he not love you when you are wounded again by sin? If you have never known Christ, know that if you do decide to accept his invitation to come to him, he wants you to do that lovingly today. Know that if you do that, you will never earn your salvation. You will never merit your salvation. Nothing about this thing has to do with your merits, what you do to attain salvation. Our salvation is not attained because of our goodness or perfection. And lastly, what we want to do today is gaze upon the cross of Christ. What happened on that Mount of Calvary? What happened on that day? The crucifixion of Jesus was an awful killing of God himself. He's hung up there on that rugged tree because our best efforts to cover our sin are not enough. He didn't want to kill us. He didn't want, to, he didn't want sin to kill us, and it would have. And so in his love, Jesus willingly gets on a cross to count all of our sins as if he had done it. And like the scapegoat in 1 Samuel, on whom, on whom all of the sins of Israel were placed, the sins of the world are now placed on Jesus. He gave himself a status that he didn't deserve, sinner. And he gives us a status that we also don't deserve, righteous. And so this exchange happens, and this slow death left him unable to even gasp for air. It was an excruciating death. And if you would just visualize for a second, it's not just that it was an excruciating death, but it was a death that was not in private. It was a death for all to see in public before the eyes of men. Do you see what, what Christ has done for you and me? We think back to Genesis 3, and we have this picture of Adam and Eve covering their sin since the garden, we have this need to cover our sin, our nakedness because of sin. 
now we look at the cross. The sinless one has taken on our sin and has been left to die as he is mocked and as he is exposed naked before men to see. He is uncovered so that we might be covered. Our sins cover him and they kill him. And yet his righteousness comes and covers us and clothes us. What is this world that God has for us? It's amazing. It's not how you would normally think. This is what God does for us, the unthinkable. And so with this act on the cross, Jesus seals for us verses one and two of the psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. We're gonna have a moment of confession in a moment. I would encourage you, take the masks off. Remove the things in our lives that keep us from God. Respond to God. Don't let sin sin seem small and don't let it seem so big that it doesn't allow you to come before the Father. Either way would be to keep silent. Each one would keep us silent before the Lord. As we enter this time, don't feel overwhelmed to say everything. You probably won't be able to. But begin this life of confession today where you acknowledge your need for Jesus and you acknowledge sin, certain sins. For some, it may have been decades, but in some, we've never done this at all. But take this invitation to come and to confess our sins before the Lord. Why must we, why must we confess before the Lord? Because blessed is the person who confesses their sins. For by God's mercy, their sins are covered and he is near to them. Let's pray.